Peace Women Across the Globe. A podcast about women's contribution to peace building all over the world. I am Yasmin Husran Lau, and I am currently the consultant of Gaston C. Ortigas Peace Institute for this project on peace women across the globe. I was born in a conflict area. Historically, my people were part of that collective uh, indigenous groups of tribes who uh, or became Muslims. But then the Spanish came, and as a colonialist project, they tried to conquer the people that they came to. And uh, of course, aside from subjugating them politically, marginalizing them, plundering the resources. 150,000 killed, 640 billion pesos in economic losses, three and a half million people forced out Part of, of it, homes. I think, of those who are familiar with the Spanish colonialism is bringing the religion of uh, Catholicism and Christianity. And so that has been the history. Well, before the Spanish came, we were independent sultanates. And then the Spaniards came and uh, uh, tried to colonize us, but we resisted. That didn't stop Spain from including the Sultanate of Sulu in territories ceded to the United States after losing the Spanish-American War. I think before the Spaniards came to the islands in, in the Philippines in Mindanao, they encountered the Moors in Spain. And so because we are similar in terms of faith, when they saw the sultanates, independent sultanates, praying similarly with the Moors, so they called us Moros. When the Spaniards came, they were not able to conquer the Muslim areas, but they were able to conquer the rest of the archipelago. And they were able to Christianize their parts of the country. And so when they were fighting the Moros, they used as their soldiers the Christianized from the other parts of the Luzon and Visaya. So in a sense, the seed, although it's not, uh, the seed of the animosity between the Muslims and Christians were created, were started by the Spanish colonial masters. Then the Americans came. And the Spanish colonial government sold the entire Philippine archipelago, including us, whom they were not able to colonize. They sold us to the Americans. So we became a part and parcel of that. And, of course, the, the resistance became stronger, you know. And um, it was really during the American colonial period that uh, we were subjugated because they have more sophisticated military might. But collectively, we res- the resistance is still there. Even up to the Philippine Republic, when the Philippines got its independence and established the Philippine Republic, the resistance was there because a lot of our ancestral domain, the lands, we were dispossessed 
of our of our lands and american multinational companies took over and they brought in settlers from the christianized area to our area and they gave practically much of our resources politically we were devastated they appointed political leaders outside and so the result was from a flourishing economically flourishing sultanates into very poor politically subjugated marginalized discriminated you know all this and that in 1971 i was born in marawi city and i was a young child at the time i experienced the impact of that continuing subjugation the triggering for the contemporary conflict is what we call the Jabida massacre in 1968 and that is a young moro soldiers recruited in the armed forces they didn't know that they were trained by president marcos to invade saba so when they found out they were massacred but one was able to escape and he was able to tell the story and that's where a national uproar happened the, the opposition at the time of uh, Ninoy Aquino made it a national issue and the founders of the revolutionary fronts Nur Miswari they founded the Moro National Liberation Front which is the first revolutionary uh, front of the Moro because they felt that continuing massacres were happening. It was an early morning Sunday, no school, so people usually would oversleep. People were caught unaware. And then when I we heard the gunshot I I opened the window and I saw the Moro National Liberation Front soldiers in front of our house on the street with their guns aimed on the other side and we had to stay in our house we couldn't leave because we might be crossfired but our house is quite a bit near back in the back of our house is a, is the lake so one of the relatives of our father came during the night with a boat and we had to quietly leave the house with my niece who was uh, just few months old and so we stood there with no cover and the water from the lake is coming in but we just have to use some flashlights to see where <laughs> we're going and then we reach an island the place and then uh, there was it was a cornfield but it was so dark so we had to walk and and climb and hold each other because we cannot afford to you know to lose each other because it's just dark and we don't know whether there are soldiers outside we had to stay with small houses of the relatives of my father and we stayed there for i think almost a month before my father arrived and brought us to manila Well, at the time I was still a child, but uh, of course there were so many questions. 
because we never thought that will happen. So questions like why, why is this happening, and trying to understand why, why the soldiers came. But I think what was very crucial in this thing is when we were forced to flee and we had to stay in a non-Muslim area and when we were discriminated, that was the thing that dawned on me. Why are they so mean to us? Why are the neighbors like, so you're a Moro, do you have a tail? We heard that Moros are monkeys. It was so traumatizing. I never felt what discrimination is. And I was asking myself, why, why are they so mean? Why are they, and even some of the teachers were, will laugh at us and all this and that. So that was really, that was really the most important moment that I realized that people should not discriminate or be mean to the other human beings just because they don't belong to the same group. At a young age, I realized that it's about people's attitude, it's about people's understanding of the other. That is the, the, the biggest challenge, because you might be able to kill everybody, but there will still be another generation that will come. But if that kind of mindset is handed down, then it will continue. So I realized that this is something much deeper. And I realized that the armed struggle is between government and us. But our neighbors are not government, are not soldiers. So how come if the soldiers are against us and killing us, and they are not soldiers, they're not killing us, but their attitude seems to be more potent than a bullet. Uh, some Moros who were of similar situation, like us, who also have to, uh, to, to continue and live in a, in a um, non-Muslim area, uh, they, they, they feel so ashamed, you know, they, they feel ashamed of their own identity to the point that they reject it. So the, the, yeah, they're even, some even changed their names. Because in our history books, the ones that is being taught in schools, we were also depicted so badly. It's in the history book. So, so if that's how the majority uh, Christians, uh, young people would understand how the Philippine history came about. So now, one of the gains of the peace process is rewriting history, correcting historical narratives, because that's part of the injustice, that uh, aside from plundering our land and resources, uh, demeaning us, our humanity. I 
come from the Maranao tribe. And we are Muslims at the same time we have ethnicity. We have cultural practices which are, you know, violative of women's dignity. And we thought that's also Islamic because it's a religion, one of which is child marriage, for example. And when you have child marriage or early marriage, then you, of course you'll have early pregnancy or childbirth. And I've questioned that. And I said, how can that be okay? How can a most loving, a just and fair and loving God allow this and say that this is part of your faith? That, that challenged me to read, you know, the interpretation of religions basically through the male. So the church is, of course, it's a very patriarchal. It's the hierarchy. And in a sense, to, among Muslims in my tribe, that's more or less the same. But I, I said, why do I have to listen to them? You know, if I have to, rec- I have to reclaim or claim my, my right to, to God uh, without passing through these interpreters, male interpreters. So I read the Quran on my own, and I really felt so, it was very liberating, but at the same time, I really felt so mad and so, really, so angry against the male, <laughs> male interpreters. Because definitely, I said, they, they kept most important things, which is against their own. Uh, of course, uh, patriarchy, the power have to be there, and anything that will undermine their power, of course, they're keeping it from us. When I read it, I found that it's a very feminist um, you know, uh, book, the Quran, and the, the, the Islamic worldview is so egalitarian and it's so full of personal growth and uh, personal agency I think that's the one if you have personal agency and being accountable for that agency so I didn't see anything about man first and woman first, woman being the source of temptation and all this and that. So that was very liberating to me. The Al Development Foundation, that the term Al Mujadila is actually from a Quran chapter. It's a verse. And it was the best way to put across our message because that that chapter, that surah in the Quran, Al-Mujadila, is about a woman who complained, who argued, who debated the Prophet Muhammad and debated God. So she questioned all that is happening. She was married and she was being treated unfairly by the husband based on a uh, pre-Islamic practice. And he, she went to the prophet and said, why? He said, then immediately after that, a revelation came to the prophet and said, now the practice that the husband used to oppress her is un-Islamic, is sinful, is this, and so therefore it's unacceptable. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, it, it, it uplifted immediately, 
you know the status of women and 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 precisely because the the title is the woman who debates mga natitirang lumpian sa lupang sinilangan ng dahil sa kayamanan ay lupang sinugatan mo pang pasimula ng batayo ng tindahan ng ginto at tanso umpisahan ng bilangan ng pagbilangan Bullet holes on freshly painted walls show the intense firefight that erupted in this safe house in Basak, Malitlit. The Marawi crisis started here. This women, although women are one half of society, but when it comes to experiencing conflict, they suffer the most. Their experience of conflict is more difficult, more violent, uh, and uh, dehumanizing compared to the male experience because they're women. They're subject to uh, violations that are not subjected to men. For example, sexual violence. When the enemies would want to hurt each other's community, the women are the best way to, to, to hurt them, to their women. So they, they, they victims of sexual violence and harassment. They, uh, when they become widows, economically they have to take care not only of their children but the extended family, the other marginalized sectors, the elderly and the women, people with disabilities. Tausugs fought American soldiers again in Budbagsak. The fight lasted four days. Again, thousands were killed. These two battles would become two of the lasting symbols of the Moro Rebellion. War has to stop, not only because it destroys economic infrastructures and those and kill people, but it, if you want your women to survive with their dignity intact and a community with dignity and, and humanity, humanness intact, then you have to spare the women from that, so they have to stop the war. Well, first is you have to recognize the complexity of war. First is you have to look at the, the one that creates war is policy, government policy. You have to influence the policy because it's, it's the government who declares war, who orders the security sector to attack. That's one. At the same time, you also have to talk to the other side and make them understand what are they fighting for. Are they really fighting for, the, for their own people, for the future? Or is it their ego? <laughs> As, as men, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, all ego. So they have to, you have to understand for what are you fighting for. I started working with the communities uh, because it's, I see things through the eyes of the those whom we call, who fall under the cracks, between the cracks. I still would want to go back and continue feeling 
uh, where are they? Because for me, that's going, that's going to be my barometer, my gauge. How much of the quality of life of the people in the farming communities, in the you know, in the rural areas and urban poor communities, and most especially, most particularly, the women of these communities, because that's my gauge. Once you see women's lives have improved then I can say the community's life. Because if the women are the most affected, are the ones who suffer, then if, if they're the ones at the very bottom, then the others who, who are above them, and if they are, you know, going up from the bottom of the ladder, then, then you can more or less say the others are, you know, are moving up. Kailangan lahat tayo magbago ng pag-iisip na sa ating pagtingin, uh, pagkilala sa ating mga kapatid na Moro o Muslim. I also joined politics because I thought, you know, it's part, the legislation is very important. Policy-wise, uh, I was looking at the, the, the policy of government towards the morals and what is the government's national peace agenda. So I thought if I can go and be part of the legislative, then I could be able to influence some of the laws. There's such saying like, a good moro is a dead moro. I ran, but I lost because, uh, you know, it's also a money thing. But for me, I lost, but I won in the sense that in my campaign, that brought me all over the country. And I know that I'm not going to win because I'm not popular. But for me to be able to speak even for two minutes to all the places that I visited, talk to the different mayors and governors, and tell them that you also, there are so many displaced moral in your community please you know please come up with a you know a mechanism where you can work with them because they can be productive so i tried and then eventually i became a member of the peace panel i was one of the two women in that in that uh, panel uh, I think that we were five or six. And then the other woman became the chair, it's, uh, Professor Miriam Ferrer. When she signed the Comprehensive Agreement, she became the, the first woman who signed a major peace agreement. I was invited uh, by the government at that time because of my history of peace work. They think that I represent a sentiment among my people who opts for a non-violent, peaceful resolution to the conflict, which, but at the same time also looking at addressing the historical injustice. And, uh, and of course, a woman coming from and having experienced it and have articulated some of what I think should be the policy 
that should include women's perspective. So they, they needed that. Very interestingly, opposite of my people. So there were men, Moro, and I was on the other side, negotiating with them. And during my first day, of course, my sincerity was questioned. I was labeled as a traitor to my people because why am I on the other side? Well, I told them, no one has a monopoly of sincerity. What, what you think is you're fighting for our people, you should not judge me, my own sincerity of what you think is your own you know, parameter and your standard. And uh, the reason why we're here is not because of our own individual egos or ourselves. This is a project beyond and more than who we are and what we are here. During one of our discussions, when we wanted to put women's meaningful political participation in the bank tomorrow, that took us almost half day, just the word meaningful political participation. But in the end, we got it. So women's meaningful political participation was that part of it in the parliament and in the ministry and all that. In the socio-economic development, uh, they should be there. Even in the demobilization of combatants, women combatants should have equal treatment and, and, and whatever benefits that they will get from decommissioning. So we, we ensured that things were there. When we looked into it, it's not just the domestic usual women's role, but they do the most critical things, like going past the checkpoints. Uh, it, they think it's better for a woman to, to do it rather than a man, because, of course, the men will be targeted by the military. So they do all this stuff, uh, you know, medical, cooking, all this and that, and also on top of it, they also fight. It's the same with the, with the reb, women rebels. You know, while the commanders, you know, the, the men after fighting all this and that, and their wounds are being taken care of, but when there's something, they also just have the multiple burden is similar. Well, now, uh, most of them are widows. And I think the challenge for them now, while we were talking to them, is a gender-fair treatment. Things cannot just be as the way the men would view it. So, in the current part of the agreement is the creation of the Bangsamoro Organic Law, which created the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao. And now we now have a transitional government, which is the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region. 
at this moment, they are now in the process of revising the former Regional Gender and Development Code because they want to integrate the experiences and they want to have a regional action plan for women, peace, and security that will really focus. So they're now pushing for a stronger women, peace, and security framework and they're also pushing for a stronger regional gender and development. In 1976, Ms. Wari and dictator Ferdinand Marcos signed the Tripoli Agreement. The deal created an autonomous region in the Moro strongholds, but only four provinces voted for autonomy. The peace accord failed. This is what makes the women crucial in the peace process. Uh, they are half of humanity, and they see what's happening in the, in the entire community. And so if you don't look at the women's perspective, I don't think any peace process will succeed without women. After 17 years of negotiations, the MILF finally signed a peace deal with the Aquino administration in March 2014. The deal aims to create an autonomous region that would be responsive to the needs and history of the Moros. In exchange, the MILF would decommission 10,000 to 15,000 troops and thousands of firearms. It is the biggest step towards closing Mindanao's painful history of violence. Are we willing to take... What we're now doing is that we increased the constituency of the peace movement because my, our mindset, especially, I mean, me, we are not thinking of any other agreements. You cannot keep on... You know, having an agreement, again fight again, and then another agreement, and then fight again. This time, this has to be it. No more generation of rebel groups. This rebel groups now is the last one. Their children who will be, who will be helped by the economic development and transformation of the camps into productive communities. We're looking at their children to be educated to be you know more more exposed and to be groomed in the parliamentary way of you know, and uh, hoping that the government will also be sincere either you kill me or i will kill you idiots rodrigo duterte was only elected president of the philippines in may but the tough talking populist has wasted no time in making his mark but this president just carpet bombed my city. So that is another complication because we're working very hard to ensure the gains of the peace by having a strong regional autonomous government. My city, which is part of that autonomous government, has been bombed. Well, you said there was ISIS. Then the, the other announcement, you said like, we're running after drug lords. And uh, while we're listening, they said they might create a second military camp. So again, militarization. So it's reversing the previous president's policy. This was the reaction of the crowd in Maguindanao upon the arrival of Davao City Mayor Rodrigo Duterte in Buluan Town. Duterte reciprocated, declaring his devotion to the Muslim communities of Mindanao. I, I can just see the challenge because people have so much 
hope that when we when we voted for the plebiscite that things are going to be fine but uh, you know where the political leadership changes every election i think that's the challenge in a, in the peace agreement in the peace process men are a problem uh, because they they just they lack the appreciation of what humanity is how 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 to be totally human and i i i think uh, they're not totally the ones to be blamed because men were once upon a time infants and they were they were molded in a culture right and so men became what they are because that's how society molded them to be so they just acted and behaved the what is expected of them the same as the women behaved and acted what is expected so it's how the society constructs how men and women should be treated and should exist but men become a problem and our problem when they fail to realize that they were molded by society and realize that they are a part of the problem and the one and the other side women who are also considered to be primary caregivers of children and boys should also by themselves realize that the part of the continuing struggle of of women is because they perpetuate also that kind of you know molding the men even the way how they treat their children the boys and the girls so unless also the women mothers realize that they should not ra- raise their children boys and girls in the same mold that produces violent men or men who continue being subjugate women then it will not change so it's there has to be a awareness for both men and women in the society for change to happen
Peace Women Across the Globe. A podcast about women's contribution to peace. This is a production of Podcast Lab in collaboration with the NGO Peace Women Across the Globe. The podcast series Peace Women Across the Globe is available on Spotify and iTunes, on Facebook and the website 1000peacewomen.org. We welcome your comments. <laughs>